The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading today is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Please stand with me as we read God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Through the uh, letter to the Hebrews here, and we come to, if not the most famous verses in, in all of Hebrews, we definitely come to some of the most familiar verses in all of Hebrews. If you're going to go into the book of Hebrews and make reference to some verses when you're talking to friends or whatever it might be, there's a really, 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 really strong chance that you're going to go to these three verses in Hebrews chapter 4. What we're going to do, what we normally do here in a moment, I'm going to hit pause, I'm going to pray for us, and what you're going to hear from part of my prayer is this, is that um, the familiarity of these verses would not blunt the impact of these verses. Familiarity can breed contempt, right? But familiarity can also breed other things. It just can, can breed a laziness. When we approach the scriptures, when we come to these verses, it's like, yeah, 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 high priest, he sympathizes with us, been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, yeah, draw near and all this kind of stuff. And we can just sort of hit it, skip, and then roll right on down the line. And my worry is that we will miss the importance and the magnitude of these three verses and the reason why the author has put them right where he has put them at the end of chapter 4 and right before he rolls into all of the talk about the high priests, the priesthoods, and all these sorts of things that's going to consume him for the next five chapters. So I'm going to pray here in a moment that our familiarity with these verses would be not blunted, but somehow would be resharpened so that the sword of God's word, which are in the verses right before we just read, would actually pierce our hearts, lay us open. The scalpel of God's word would freshly cut us to the very bone and marrow of our soul so that we would be exposed before God and to see our need for him as it relates to to these things and these most exquisite and beautiful of verses. So there you go. There's your pre-sermonette right there, all right? So sermon title this morning is The Heart of Our High Priest. We're going to get another snapshot, snapshot of the heart of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to sum up these three verses, I think you could land it like this with our main idea, that Jesus is our sympathizing great high priest. Jesus is our sympathizing great high priest who yearns to help in our time of need. Is he our great high priest? Absolutely. What does he do as our great high priest? He sympathizes with us. 
And his heart, what is his heart towards us? It's a heart that yearns to help when you find yourself in a time of need. These Jewish Christians that he's writing to found themselves in a time of need. And what they needed to know is that they have a high priest who yearns to help them in that moment. And as you're going to see, I think we are not too dissimilar from these original Christians who would have first received this letter written to them several thousand years ago. So let's pray this morning. Let's ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he can do, to take his word, to lay us open and expose our need for Jesus, the Son of God, the great high priest who loves to help those who are his own. Okay, so let's pray. Father, I'm asking that you would do what is entirely impossible for me to do on my own. I do not have the power to wield your word in such a way to lay the hearts of all who are listening this morning, to lay those hearts over. I, I, don't, I don't have that kind of power. I don't have that kind of ability. That is why right now I am asking for the Holy Spirit to come and do what he is totally capable of doing totally able to do, wants to do, and loves to do, which is to wield the sword of God's word in such a way that exposes our hearts before Jesus, the Son of God, putting the spotlight directly on him so that he would receive the glory and the honor and the exaltation and the worship. And that in so doing we would be drawn near and would draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that our great high priest rules upon. We want to see Jesus this morning. So Holy Spirit, help lead. Speak through me. Expose us to the words before us so that we would see what our souls desire, long for, and absolutely need, and that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We ask these things for the fame and for the glory of our King, the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, we're trucking through the book of Hebrews, right? And if you remember, several weeks ago, we studied the last five verses of chapter 2, and we said it was those last five verses of chapter 2 where we got the first snapshot, the first picture of the heart of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what we discovered was that the heart of Jesus for his people is a heart that is condescending, it's a stooping heart, and it's a heart that is marked entirely by compassion. It's a compassionate heart heart. But that snapshot of Christ's heart doesn't stand alone as our verses this morning are going to reveal. We're going to see yet another picture of the heart of Christ in these three verses before us this morning. We get this connective tissue, so to speak, in verse 14 when the author begins by saying, since then. 
And what he's doing is he's saying, I've said a bunch of stuff up until this point in verse 14 right now. And what you need to know is when I'm about to say some things in verses 14, 15, and 16, I'm not starting off on a new trajectory. What I'm simply doing is riding the wave of chapters 1, 2, 3, and the first portions of chapter 4 up until this point right now. So by beginning verse 14, saying since then, what he's doing is he's establishing a connection that most definitely goes all the way back to that first glimpse of Christ's heart that we saw at the end of chapter 2. And what he's going to do now is stitch a bunch of things together, and he's going to get incredibly practical about what does this all mean for you and what does this all mean for me. So having dwelt upon the condescending and compassionate heart of Jesus back at the end of chapter 2, the author then rolled into chapter 3 and he called us to consider Jesus. Remember, that was the immediate application in that moment. Because Jesus is condescending, because Jesus is compassionate, I want you to consider him. Consider who? Jesus. Jesus, our apostle, and Jesus, the high priest, he says, of our confession. And then he began to move forward into chapter 3. He showed that Moses, the great Moses of the Old Testament, was, technically speaking, an Old Testament apostle. Moses was God's messenger, which is what an apostle is. Moses was sent with God's message. He was sent with God's message to God's people. And then he told us that in this role as apostle, Moses was incredibly faithful. But when compared to Moses, he said, there is someone who is far superior in his faithfulness, namely Jesus, who is the apostle of our confession. That's his argument he was making. And then he continued to move forward. He says, and it's this apostle, which apostle? Jesus Christ, our Lord, the apostle of our confession that we do not want to fall away from. For, verse 14 If we fail to hold our original confidence firm to the end, then we will fail to reach God's promised eternal rest found in Jesus, our apostle. Therefore, last week, strive, work, strive to rest, strive to enter the rest, work to rest upon the foundation of Jesus Christ alone, rest on the apostle of your confession. Why? So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedient unbelief that marked the Exodus generation. Now, this has been the argument. I've summarized almost two and a half chapters down to about five or six sentences here. An argument that started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 14. And what we need to admit right now in this moment is that the last two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, and all of that language of warning, the warning against falling away from Jesus, the apostle of our confession, these chapters have been filled with very strong speaking on the part of the author. But now that the strong speaking has been spoken, there are going to come words of rich comfort and words of pure encouragement as Moses fades from the picture and we are left now with three verses that seek, call us to seek and behold Jesus Christ alone. 
Remember, not only is Jesus the superior apostle of our confession, but guess what? Jesus is also the high priest of our confession. And in order to transition to the topic of Jesus' high priesthood, which is what he's going to do, if you guys know how Hebrews is laid out, he's going to take up this concept of Jesus being the high priest of our confession in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. He's going to, this is the bread and butter. We're pulling up to sup and eat on the very bread and butter of the book of Hebrews, Jesus being the high priest of our confession. And in order to transition us into the topic of Jesus' high priesthood, guess what? The author says, I want you guys to pause for a second, and I'm going to beckon you to come and behold the heart of this high priest. The very deepest heart of this high priest for sinners and sufferers who are trusting in him and him alone. You see, it's going to say right here in chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is our great high priest. But listen, in saying this, that Jesus is our great high priest, many of us right now are most likely feeling a tension. When you hear me say Jesus is our great high priest, or you read it there in the very first verse of our section this morning, in verse 14, there's this tension that begins to rise up within us. Because on one hand, we know that when a pastor like me says something like it's really good news that Jesus is our great high priest, you get this inkling that you should probably be really excited about this fact as much as I'm excited about this fact. But the fact is, you struggle to be excited about the fact that Jesus is your great high priest. You hear that and you're sort of like, well, okay, I guess that's good news. That Jesus is my great high priest, but I really struggle to be excited about this fact. Or on the other hand, we are excited about this fact that Jesus is our great high priest, but we just aren't really sure what the priesthood of Jesus means for me in my day-to-day life. After all, i got to go to work on Monday, y'all. And like, why should I care? Why is it good news for me on Monday morning that Jesus is my great high priest? Somewhere, my guess is that we're all living in that tension here this morning. After all, the world of high priests, Old Testament sacrificial system, it just seems so out of date, so antiquated. It just seems so foreign to our context. Most of us aren't traveling to the temple and slaughtering lambs. I hope. And so we see the author getting pretty stoked about Jesus being our great high priest. He's writing to Jewish Christians who would know this context of Jesus being a great high priest we sort of go, I'm sure they were really jazzed about this idea of Jesus being the great high priest, but maybe like they're the ones who should be really excited about this, and since we're so far removed from it, I can just sort of check out for the next five chapters, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Don't really have anything to do with me. Hey, maybe I'll check back in when we get to chapter 10, and it starts to get really practical, and chapter 11 is that roll call, the hall of fame of faith, and then we'll get to chapter 12, it's really good, where he says, let us turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
And I'll, I'll sort of check back in then. What I'm trying to do right now is tell you that if you are living in this tension and those are the conclusions you're beginning to draw, you're flirting on the edge of missing some of the absolute best good news for you, for your life as a Christian and what it means for you on Monday morning, what it means for you to live as a mommy and daddy, what it means to live for you as a neighbor, what it means for you to live as someone who goes to work, whatever it might be, wherever you're at. You see, the world of high priests, it is admittedly foreign to us. But just because it's foreign to us, my encouragement is fight the temptation, the temptation that says, I can just really not really care right now whether Jesus is my great high priest or not. And then you should ask yourself the question, so if Pastor Jonathan is saying, fight the temptation to say, I don't really care whether Jesus is a great high priest or not, you should hopefully be asking yourself, then why should I care right now? Why should I care? And I think the answer to your question is the very last phrase in verse 16, where the author says you should care about this right now if you have ever found yourself desperate for help in time of need. Anyone here this morning ever found themselves desperate for help in a time of need? Pay attention. Buckle up. Scoot to the edge of your feet, click your pen open, and begin to write down things and pay attention. Because the author says, these Jewish Christians were in the exact same place. Do you find yourself needing help in trial? Do you find yourself needing help in suffering? Do you find yourself needing help when tempted to sin? Help and holding your confidence in Jesus firm to the end, help in the daily battle of striving to rest on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out. Y- yes? Great, says the author. This is really good news for you. You need to sit up, you need to pay attention because you find yourself in good company. These Jewish Christians were in the exact same place. They too were being buffeted by suffering. They too were being enticed to sin. They too were being tempted to not consider Jesus, tempted to not rest on Jesus, tempted to not draw near to Jesus. And just like you and I can be tempted, the author is saying, I'm writing these things things for you because you find yourself desperately in need of help in this time of help and the answer is turn your eyes upon the great high priest who yearns in his heart to stoop low with compassion for those who need help if you find yourself raising your hand and saying I've been desperate and in need of help the author says Jesus, your high priest, is exactly who you need to know about. And what you need to know, and I'm just going to say this again, because as absolutely, I want you to get it. I want, you're probably going to keep hearing me say this until it just sort of comes home to roost. I'm pressing hard right now on the practical realities of these verses right now. I'm pressing very hard on the practical realities of Jesus' priesthood right now because I want you to see how important these next five chapters are going to be for us. 
to talk about Jesus as our great high priest. This is not some arcane theological academia for the really smart people in those seminaries out there, really getting into the nitty-gritty of sacrifices and temples and some crazy guy named Melchizedek and priests and priesthoods and all this kind of stuff. We sort of want to read chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 and go, I'm sure someone really smart somewhere really cares about this stuff. And what the author is saying, no, 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 this isn't arcane theological academia for the few. No, this is ground level comfort and encouragement born right from the heart of Christ for those who are weary and heavy laden. Anybody weary and heavy laden here today? Jesus, your great high priest, is incredibly good news for you then right now. In other words, the high priesthood of Jesus is good news for you, which is why the author turns us to see point number one, that Jesus is my great high priest. You got to start somewhere, and he's going to say, let me start here. Let me just tell you that Jesus, he is my great high priest. Verse 14, you can just look at that first part of the verse there. Since then, we have a great high priest. A great high priest who is what? Who has passed through the heavens. Chapter 2, verse 17, we learn that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. Chapter 3, verse 1, describes Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession. And now we learn of his greatness. His greatness, for we have a great high priest, he says. Of all the high priests that have come and gone, Jesus stands alone at the top. He is the great high priest. His high priesthood is beyond compare. How is it beyond compare? It's beyond compare in that he has passed through the heavens. The implication here is that most all other priests could do was pass through a curtain in the Holy of Holies into a temple earthly made by man. That's what they could pass through, but not this priest. This is a great high priest who is fully God and fully man. And what he has passed through is he has passed through the heavens, and he is right now, says chapter 1, verse 3, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what the author wants us to see is this. No priest before Christ has ever been able to do that. One has, the great one, the great high priest. All the prior priests, they were just merely men alone. But our great high priest is Jesus. So he's zooming in on the humanity of Jesus by calling out his earthly name, Jesus, the name given to him in his incarnation, the name expressive of his true humanity. But he's not just Jesus. He's Jesus, the Son of God. And that title, that name, is expressive of his true deity. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? Stitch it all together. Stitch those truths together in in verse 14. Since Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens, then what should we do? Let us hold fast to our confession concerning this high priest who is so great. This is the author's application for his audience. Let us hold fast our confession 
He's saying what you've read in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, all the way up to this point, don't bail out on this right now. Hold fast to this confession. After all, having passed through the heavens, Jesus is now experiencing the promised rest we need. And if we are going to get help from anywhere, we must get this help from him. So hold fast to him. Hold fast to your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To ease up now, he's telling the original audience. To draw back now, to drift away now, would be the craziest and most foolish thing you could ever possibly do. So don't loosen your grip on what you believe, but rather hold fast to the high priest of your confession. You see, this is the supreme greatness of Jesus, our high priest. He is the exalted one. He is the one high, lofty, and lifted up. But left to ourselves, we might wonder and we might begin to doubt whether someone so exalted, so superior, so great could ever really be truly concerned for us. That's sort of how we operate on the earthly level at times, right? Man, this person is great. They are lofty. They are high up. They're doing awesome stuff. Surely they wouldn't care about a peon like me. I'm low. I'm nowhere near. Your greatness, we compute in our mind, is evidence that you will have no concern or care for me. And if we're not careful, we can transpose that idea onto the great, superior, exalted high priest of our confession. But notice what the author does. He says, no, 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 no. What you need to know is that the great high priest of our confession, he is very concerned for you. Very concerned for you, says the author. For point number two, Jesus is my sympathizing high priest. My sympathizing high priest. He has sympathy in my weaknesses. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. This is getting into the language of the heart of our Savior. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, yet without sin. Listen, when the author says, we do not have a high priest who is unable, he is speaking a double negative there right now. And the purpose of this double negative, says one commentator, is to actually assert a very strong positive. In other words, when the author says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, so there's the double negative, what he's actually saying is we most certainly do have a high priest who is wonderfully able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's how he's talking to us right now. So far from the supreme greatness of Jesus' high priesthood making him a cold heart, who has no care for others, it's the supreme greatness of his priesthood that actually endears him to us. His greatness in no way diminishes his sympathy. As a matter of fact, it's Jesus' greatness that compels his nearness to us, even in our weakness. One of the best books out right now, in my opinion, is a book called Gentle and Lowly written by an author named Dane Ortland. 
And in his book, Gentle and Lowly, concerning this very verse, Ortland says that all, listen, he says that all our natural intuitions tell us that Jesus is with us. Jesus is on our side. Jesus is present. Jesus is helping when life is going well. We don't have to be overly convinced to believe that Jesus is for us, Jesus is cool with us, Jesus doesn't mind condescending, Jesus doesn't mind being compassionate, Jesus doesn't mind doing these sorts of things when life is going well. Of course he wants to be near me when my life is going well. What we have a harder time believing, says Ortland, is when life is not going well, when life is suffering, when life is trials, when life is hardship. Sometimes when those things are there because I've been tempted by sin and I actually believed sin to be better than Jesus. And in those moments, our natural intuition. So if he's walked the path and has felt the temptation, but has never fallen into sin, then how in the world can he help me right now? You've got, the, you got your thinking totally upside down. The fact that Jesus has walked the path before us, yet at no time ever gave in to the temptation before him, this does not mean Jesus is ill-qualified to suffer with us. It actually means that Jesus is the only one who is fully qualified to co-suffer with us. Why? Because far beyond the point that you and I often yield to sin, Jesus shot past that mark and experienced the unyielding burden of testings, the unyielding burden of temptings, and made it all the way to the right hand of the Father. It can say, I know the experience, the magnitudinal burden of being tempted and being tempted and being tested and being tested. I, yet, I never once yielded. I never once gave in. I made the race. I breasted the, I got to the right hand of the Father. Trust me, I know. I know. I know the magnitude of the temptation and the trial and the testing that is sitting in your lap right now. Trust me, if anyone knows, I I know. He has experienced these things to a degree. The testings and the temptings and the trials of our lives, he has experienced these things to a degree that we cannot fathom. We cannot fathom. The heat gets cranked up in our lives just a little bit in the trial, and we go down. That temptation lingers longer than an hour. Boom, we bite into it, and it's done. Minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, month after month, year after year, Jesus bore the burden of trials, temptings, sufferings, and yet once never gave in to them. I'm telling you, I think one of the things that's going to blow our mind when we get to heaven and we get to see our faith turned aside as we look full into the face of Jesus is that we're going to be blown away by the degree to which he bore these things. And it's just going to buckle our knees. But it's this very truth, says the author. It's this very truth that is good news describing our sympathizing high priest. All of our weaknesses, all 
of our sufferings. Yes, even all of our sins awaken his compassion toward you who are in Christ. All of this greatly endears him to us as the very savior and comforter that we require. You don't need to look anywhere else, says the author. Don't go looking anywhere else. Are you going to go somewhere else looking for help beyond this kind of great high priest? Are you going to hold loose your confession of this kind of great high priest? The sympathizing priest who knows these things in these ways? You don't need to look for anywhere else. Therefore, come and see Point three and last point that Jesus is my helping high priest. Look at verse 15, verse 16. It's that last phrase there. Let us then, let us then, then what? With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There it is. Jesus is my helping high priest. Notice the application of invitation laid on us by the author. What's the application right now? Because verse 15 is true, Because Jesus is our great high priest who is very able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he, in every respect, has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Here's what you need to do. Draw near to him. This is just pure application in reading your Bible. Look at the command. The invitation is don't delay. Don't go somewhere else. Don't dilly-dally. Don't buy into the lie that we can rest on someone else other than his high priest. No, 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 no. Draw near. Draw near to his throne of grace. Look at the very heart of Jesus for you who have been saved by him and draw near to his throne, our Savior. He is the priest. He is also the king. As the priest, he sympathizes with his own. And as the king, he is ruling upon a throne, a throne from which grace is dispensed to God's people in a never-ending supply. It is a throne of grace. This is why we can draw near with confidence, says the author. By his blood, whose blood? Jesus' blood. Your great high priest has made purification for your sins. And having accomplished all that was needed on the cross, Jesus then passed through the heavens, opening the way for us through him to now approach that very heaven because of our union with him. We may come to his throne of grace because our sympathizing high priest is there on the throne bidding us to come. You don't have the priest king ruling on his throne saying, you sinned again, beat it. Clean yourself up and don't you ever come back until you do it again. He's there ruling on the throne, dispensing grace to those whom he is saved by grace, saying, no, no, I've seen you fall. I saw you bite into that temptation. I saw that trial. I saw that testing. I saw that tempting. I saw that suffering. I saw that hardship. Don't go somewhere else. Come, come. This is a throne of grace. You'll find the grace that saved you is still being dispensed to you. Come, draw near to me. Keep on coming to this throne. Don't ever stop coming to this throne. For every sin of yesterday, you will receive mercy at this throne. For every help in time of to need for tomorrow, you will find grace here at this throne. There is nothing to do but to come to him and to call on him. Again? I, you have to... You, 
The invitation is to come and do this again? Yes, do it again. For, you mean for the umpteenth time? After I told Jesus I would never do that thing, and then I found myself doing that, that thing again, the invitation is still there for me to come? Yes, for the umpteenth time. Come, come to him, do it again and again, and then turn around and do it again and again. Do not hide your weaknesses from him. He is willing to help. He is willing to help. Not begrudgingly. You don't have to force him. You don't have to bribe him. He's not stingy, happy, and willing to help as our great high priest. Listen, he knows all the mistakes that you have made and that you're going to continue to make. He knows how often you will need to come back. He knows that you cannot pray as you want. He knows that even your holiest moment is polluted by sin. He knows that even the strongest faith is mixed with unbelief. Yet, verse 16 says, mercy awaits and grace abounds to you. So are you going to go somewhere else? I go back to the question that I asked you at the very beginning. Anyone here this morning ever been desperate for help in time of need? Anyone here ever been, (laughs) I'm desperate, I have time of needs right now. And ask yourself, Where will I go for help in my time of need? That is the question for you right now. Where are you going to go? For some of you, it's this first initial, I'm seeing that I I can't save myself. My sin has separated me from a holy God, and I can't save me. I need someone else to save me. And Hebrews would say, Jesus is that someone. He absorbed God's wrath for you. He made purification for your sins as your great high priest. He's washed you clean by his blood. And so now you can come to him in your time of need, that first need, that need of salvation. You can go to him. Some of us find ourselves beyond coming to Jesus in that initial moment of I need help and I'm coming to you in that moment of salvation and just found that a lot of the Christian life is a rinse and repeat of I'm desperate for help right now. I'm desperately in need right now. I need Jesus 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 right now. And you need to know verse 15 says Jesus is never sick and tired of you coming to him in those moments. Never. Never. His heart is saying, come on. Come to me right now. Bring the trial. Bring the testing. Bring the suffering. Bring the temptation. Bring the help. Bring the need. I know you're desperate for it. I'm yearning, drawn into this moment right now with you. I'm here to help you in this moment. Where Are you going to go for help in your time of need? Are you going to go to the earthly priests of our secular age hoping that they can help? Or will you go to the sympathizing great high priest whose deepest heart is to help in time of need? Some of us think through song lyrics. Um, And there's some great old hymns of the faith in my hunch is that some of you guys have already beat me to the punch to this point right now because one of the greatest hymns that are hopefully ringing through some of our minds 
is just simply these truths put to song. Before the throne of God above. What throne? The throne of grace in verse 16. I have a strong and perfect plea. Because you're strong in and of yourself? No. But because of the strength of him who defeated Satan, sin, and death in his resurrection. A great high priest whose name is love. There it is. This is Charity Lee's Bancroft. He's writing this hymn. And what she's doing, she's just ripping off these three verses and putting them to song. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. I can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Why? Because I have accomplished something? No, because my my great high priest, whose name is love, who lives and pleads for me, my name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, while he is there, operating as the great high priest, representing me to the Father, I know that no tongue can bid me thence depart. So what are you going to do tomorrow morning when Satan tempts you to despair? You're going to get up tomorrow morning and the words that I'm speaking are going to just roll off into the echoes of yet another sermon that's been preached. Your head's going to lift off the pillow and you're going to feel the despairing temptations of the enemy. Says Bancroft, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what are you going to do? Run and find help from someone else? Or are you going to run to the help of the sympathizing high priest? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what you're going to do tomorrow morning when Satan tempts you to despair and says, hey, remember that sin yesterday that you said you'd never do again and you just did it again for the umpteenth time? And he tells you of the guilt within You know the gospel roots are sinking into your heart and you're holding fast to your sympathizing high priest when the gospel compels you to go right back to the throne of grace and say, I've got to go to the only source of my help right now. I've got to. Because if I don't, I'm going to try to rest on some other form of help and this help will be no help because this help is not the help of my sympathizing high priest. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am because he is the son of God. He is the king of glory and of grace, one with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high with Christ, my savior and my God. Friends, Jesus is our sympathizing great high priest who yearns to help in our time of need. 
where are you going to go for help? Where are you going to go to he- for help? Verse 14, let us hold fast to this confession. Verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to this great high priest. Let's pray. Father, I can only imagine for some of us here this morning, these words are ringing so loudly in our head, it feels like there's bells ringing right inside our ear. And we find ourselves desperately in need of this help. For some of us, it's that first initial calling out for help in that moment of salvation, of being saved. Like, it's just become evidently clear. Like, the Holy Spirit has just made evidently clear. I have never once in my life looked to Christ and said, Jesus Christ, Son of God, save me, please. I've never looked to him for that help. And I'm asking that you, Holy Spirit, right now, would make that singular truth weigh so stinking heavy on someone's heart and mind right now that they would just be almost sick if they tried to think of anything else. Today is the day of salvation. Help them to not bite the lie that, yeah, I'll just deal with this kind of Jesus stuff tomorrow. Father, make it not so. Father, for some of us, maybe the bells of help are just ringing so loudly in our ear because we have looked to Christ and called upon him for that first moment of help in that first moment of believing in salvation. But what's become manifestly evident throughout the weeks, months, years, maybe even decades is that I have looked for help in the Christian walk, the Christian life for everywhere but Jesus. Father, would you bring us to repent? Would you bring us to believe that Jesus is our great high priest and I can find the help that I need in nowhere else but him? Holy Spirit, grip us, change us, conform us to the image of the Savior we say we love. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.